you know, I think what you um, what you have to do to be a good innovator these days is assume you're always wrong, right? Assume you're wrong even when you launch a product. Assume there's ways to improve that product. There's things that you forgot, things that you missed. And when your mindset is on iteration and constant improvement, then you're going to be okay. You'll survive that as long as you go in without believing you figured it out correctly. Well, let's get this party started then. Michael Bamberger, he's the founder and CEO of Tetra Insights. And he's joining us today from Boulder, Colorado. That's right. Nice to see you both. Thank you for having me here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Uh, So tell me a little bit about Tetra Insights and what are you guys doing there? Yeah, we are a technology company. We build enterprise software for organizations that build uh, world-class user experiences. So researchers uh, on user experience teams use our software for conducting interviews with their customers and prospective users and uh, turning those conversations into uh, insights and data that they can share with the rest of their team to help them make decisions. Oh, fascinating. So this actually is very relevant to what we were just discussing pre-call. Can you paint a sort of a vignette of how, how this process looks if a company were to adopt adopt Tetra, what would it look like for them to implement this and start using it? Yeah, typically our customers are coming to us after they've reached the limits of their existing solutions. So a lot of their user experience research processes are going to be using manual tools like Zoom, spreadsheets, documentation tools, things like that. And they're looking to really centralize the research operations and elevate the analysis and synthesis that they can do from their conversations. So to get started with us is really easy, where we start as like a simple plug-in for Zoom. So we integrate with Zoom. So you can bring in your conversations. You can take live notes during your conversations to annotate and tag every moment. And then as you're collecting data in our platform, you can then synthesize it based on what you've tagged. You can search through the transcripts and pull them into video clips and basically use our tool for collecting insights from across those conversations and then sharing them as video clips or as uh, other reports. So to get started is really simple. If you have existing audio or video, just upload it to our platform. The videos get transcoded and transcribed, or you can then annotate and tag them. Uh, If you're conducting new conversations, then you use our live notes feature to tag those conversations in real time as you're having them. Yeah, fascinating. I could see how useful that would be. How, How did you find yourself in the position of founding this company? Yeah, that's a really, I think, an interesting question. Um, I can give you the more abridged version of the origin story here. Uh, so my career, I've spent the past uh, more than a decade now working with organizations to help them make product ex- uh, product and customer experience decisions. So I worked at a private equity firm where I was doing this across their portfolio, where I, it was my job to collect all kinds of different data to help figure out what new product should this business launch. Uh, And I was working with uh, distressed um, information services companies. So we would buy companies that were going through bankruptcy or being spun out of a holding company. And it was my job to then take those inherited assets and figure out what can we actually build that's going to be valuable from here on. So I started, my background was more in uh, quantitative analytics. So I'd look at their existing data and figure out what was their previous product mix, their previous revenue mix, their contribution margins of these products, and try to figure out products to reintroduce or iterations on existing products. And one thing I quickly found in trying to do that is when you're buying a distressed business, uh, all of their quantitative data is actually an autopsy report. 
And unfortunately, not uh, the font of insight about what we should do next is not found in that record. So I had to find new methods to collect data to figure out how to innovate in these completely disparate companies and industries that I knew nothing about. We had companies that were selling like corporate finance products, companies that were selling uh, like senior, uh, senior executive training products, just industries I was not familiar with at all. So I just uh, came up with the novel idea of when we bought a new company, I would just pick up the phone and dial through the customer list, try to get as many people on the phone as I can, and just talking to them to figure out you know, why did you why do you work with this company? Why did you stop working with them? What competitors are you working with now? How could this company maybe potentially help you better going forward? And suddenly overnight, I had very specific ideas about how we could innovate for each of those businesses. So that was when I first discovered qualitative insight. Uh, then at my next company, so in 2014, I co-founded a business that's now called Feedback Loop. And in that business, we were helping enterprise companies to validate product concepts. And I went back to my old bag of tricks of quantitative analytics, um, looking at their existing data to understand what do we know about their existing customers and users? How does this help us define what we're going to build for that, what they should build next? And found the same kind of thing where the quantitative data was helpful, but not necessarily the best sort of insight. So I started doing the same thing where we started doing what were then called um, user tests. So putting prototypes and concepts in front of prospective users, recording those interactions, and then sharing that data back with the stakeholders. Immediately, we found the same thing that I found at my previous, uh, the private equity firm, which was when you share real customer insight in the form of audio or video, conversations, snippets of those conversations, grouped by theme, grouped by finding with decision makers, uh, it is the most impactful form of data that you can give them. So for the first time in my career doing that at scale, I saw teams getting rapidly aligned with shared understanding about what they should do, what their customers and users were experiencing, and how they should innovate. I also saw these teams confidently collaborating um, and making decisions with confidence and realized this qualitative insight, direct customer feedback, is not just a helpful tool in making decisions. It's the most powerful tool that I've ever seen. So unfortunately, at that last company, we weren't able to scale the qualitative insight work we were doing. You know, we would have to pour through dozens of interviews, pulling out different video clips, stitching them together, uh, letting my computer get hot and make loud noises for four hours, and then out an MP4 would pop. We'd share that with the client. If they came back to us with more questions, well, what did they say about this topic? Or what if we look at this segment of users? What was their answer to this type of question? Then we had to go back to the back to the raw data again, parse through it again, pull out those clips again. It would be days or weeks of work. So that previous business ended up going uh, building technology that did more automated testing, so surveying and unmoderated user tests. Mm -hmm. And when I left that company, I had this profound insight that um, this qualitative data is, again, the most impactful form of insight companies can have for making these strategic customer and user experience decisions. And I need to build a technology that enables companies to do this at scale. So that was really the epiphany, that qualitative insight was invaluable. The technology didn't exist to use qualitative data as readily as you can use quantitative data. And that's what we're building. And you know, the other thing that we found was that uh, companies were investing heavily in user experience. It was growing. Uh, and they were dedicating research personnel to conducting this type of uh, qualitative inquiry. So we're building essentially the technology set that allows these individual contributors inside enterprise companies that focus on user experience research do, to do their work more effectively, faster, and with greater value and impact than they were ever able to before. Fascinating. So so I guess there's, there's a couple of different focus areas in which this product could be helpful. There's recruiting. There's actually conducting the interviews. You, you'd mentioned that there's sort of a like a video conferencing note taking app that uh, connects into Zoom that allows 
a Zoom conversation to have added functionality and tracking. Uh, what else? What else do? You, what else does this product do that helps generate those insights and make it easy to go back through? If you wanted to back test an idea through a dozen or two dozen interviews, and you know mine them for another facet of uh, your hypothesis, what would that look like? Yeah. So the simple thing that happens is when you upload your audio and video into the Tetra platform, we transcode the video files so that they're easier for streaming, uh, easier for actually viewing with speed and scale. You don't have to wait for these giant video files to load. We also transcribe and index them. So literally every moment of every video is corresponding to a transcript that you can then find and, and browse very easily. So once audio recordings or video recordings are in Tetra, you can do like a Google style query into that data to see what did people say about this topic. And you can see it across project. You can see who the participants were. You can then assimilate all that data into a synthesized view to share. So just by putting data on the platform, we're, index, we're transcribing and indexing and structuring this data so that it's accessible. We are adding features for automated tagging of this data, but that's not available for all customers currently. But once the data is on the platform, you can search through it the same way you search through a Google search result. It's that fast and easy to get across thousands of hours of content just by putting in keywords. So that's like the first thing that it does. The second thing is it allows end users to now go and tag this data much more easily. So you search through the transcript, find a specific theme or quote that you're interested in. You can just highlight it, annotate it, and tag it. And now that's available as like a tagged insight inside your repository. So let's say you're going through trying to find all the moments that users were confused using your software. For example, the software you're using right now for this podcast, if you have a bug or something, you go and find those moments of frustration where someone's like, oh, it's not working. You can search for that across the transcripts, tag that as bugs. Then you have you can go and synthesize, show me all the times that users mentioned that we tagged it as bugs. Now you can share that to your product management suite. So your JIRA ticket for your bug team to work on or something like that. So it makes it really easy for uh, individuals to turn this raw data into something actually coded and actionable. Uh, for whatever process it's going to feed into. Mm -hmm. Michael, I a question for you, like for the listeners out there, what, what is the difference between quantitative data and qualitative data? So, you know, the way that I think about it is quantitative data is very easy to kind of run algorithms against. You can sum that data, you can divide it, you can uh, query it in the typical kind of um, mathematical ways. You can throw a mathematical function at quantitative data. Qualitative data is not inherently measurable in that way. So qualitative data from our perspective is always going to be inherently unstructured and incalculable. So that's kind of the difference, right? For us, qualitative data is really audio and video. There are other forms of qualitative data out there like open-ended text responses and things like that. Uh, so for me, you know, the real difference is it's not easy to tabulate or run calculations on qualitative data. It's the type of data where you actually have to do some rigorous analysis work to get any sort of um, thematic finding that's significant and consistent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one one good example of this, the qualitativeness of user research is the, the work that my partner does, where often she'll have a number of videos from a number of interviewees, and the presentation to the client is stitching those videos together to tell the story that those people who are speaking actually meant to say, but their interview might have meandered all over the place. But there's a certain amount of interpretation and art to piecing together the message in a way that becomes uh, 
speaking to the essence of what the users were feeling and then digesting it in a way that can be actionable and received. Yes, I think that's a, a great way of thinking through it. There is an art and a science to qualitative data. I think that's true of all data for someone who's really good at actually using it to tell a compelling picture, to paint things into insights. But for qualitative data, you have to have a certain skill set to be able to glean the meaning from it. That's a human function, right? So that's one of the kind of the essential truths with Tetra and the technology we build is we're empowering people to use this data to glean insights. You know, we can't necessarily say just by putting data in our platform, it's insightful. We can tabulate things for you. We can make the data, we could predict what the tag might be, but for you to interpret that insight is gonna be a human function. And you know, one of the interesting things is um, when qualitative data is shared with groups of people, they typically have a, a very similar interpretation of what that data is saying. Whereas quantitative data, you could show 10 different people, 10 different statistics about something, and they might interpret it completely differently. People rated this concept a six out of 10. Is that good? Is that bad? Someone's going to feel differently about it. But people interpreting qualitative data where someone's saying over and over, oh my goodness, I wish this existed. This solves such a huge problem for me. You see four people mention that, everyone's going to have the same understanding. Like This is really valuable for some people. We have an insight here that we can now dig into more deeply to understand what we should do. So um, it absolutely, there's an art to it. It's, um, you know, how I discovered the value of qualitative insight was kind of, uh, it was accidental. I didn't know what I was learning as I was learning it. And then when I was doing it at scale for large companies, it was surprising to me how influential this data was. And I was like, okay, I have a quantitative analytics background. I have to believe that truth lies in large numbers with statistical inquiry. And now I was seeing that senior decision makers and gigantic companies were discarding these you know, billions of rows of data with all this rigorous analysis with statistical significance for a handful of quotes. Sometimes one quote cut through the noise and was what they were able to make decisions on. And mm. I'm like, what the heck is actually going on here? This is very, I knew it was valuable, but that was surprising. So I actually looked into it and the science behind it. And there's actually a science to why qualitative data is so influential. It's because uh, there's this researcher I came across, his name is Kendall Haven, and he uh, basically talks about what he considers the, the storytelling brain. He says every human brain has what, what he terms the neural story network. All information that goes into your brain is processed by the neural story network to make sense of it. And what he says is when you give people data points, they augment and distort that data to fit an existing narrative. That's the way the neural story network works, which is why when you give people data, hard data and facts, that is contrary to their prevailing beliefs or mental models, it actually does not convince them otherwise. It strengthens their existing position. It's this bizarre mm -hmm. backfire effect that comes with quantitative and fact-based data. With qualitative data, it's inherently structured as a story. It's a person. You've got a protagonist going through some, side of, some sort of actions where good things or bad things happen to them, and there's some kind of resolution and outcome. Qualitative data, just a conversation, is qualitative data, obviously, and it's inherently in a narrative structure. So when you share people qualitative data, their neural story network doesn't have to distort it to make sense of it. It's like putting a cylinder into a round hole as opposed to into a square peg into a round hole. You don't have to distort to make it fit. And that's what's so influential about qualitative data is your brain can actually process this data in a one-to-one -one way much more readily than with other forms of data. So that was an epiphany to me. It's finally made sense to me why um, big, well-funded companies that have 
major budgets at their disposal, were able to make huge decisions based on a, a handful of quotes from conversations. It's because their brains could actually understand it at a much more substantial level than with any other data they were processing. So, Michael, the 10, 10, 12 years ago, most you know, qualitative testing and feedback uh, was primarily intended as usability testing. Uh, I'm curious if you've seen that evolve, the type of insights people are looking for now, away from usability, um, you know, it, due to the fact that people are just far more, um, you know, digitally aware and like they know how to use apps and uh, you know things like that. Have you have you seen an evolution in the you know the last handful of years in the type of qualitative insights um, people are are looking to get? Absolutely. Uh, so yes, usability testing has been around um, since the dawn of software, probably even before that. And uh, other types of qualitative research has existed in the academic realm of social sciences primarily until recently. And as user experience research has become more ingrained inside organizations, the way they think about data collection across their innovation life cycle has changed. So usability testing is what I would consider the end stage of research. And if you talk to user experience researchers, they typically talk about two broad buckets of research. Evaluative research, where you're, that's usability testing, testing concepts that exist in reality or prototypes of those concepts, and then generative research, which is discovery work, figuring out are there problems here. Um, nowadays, I would say most, the majority of uh, research work being done is still usability testing because that's the low-hanging fruit, improving existing products, solving bugs, solving issues. But most of the researchers that we work with are doing a whole continuous spectrum of research. It starts with discovery. Is this a problem for users and customers? Is there a segment that cares about solutions here? How are they solving these problems now? What are the gaps in the existing solutions? Where is there room for improvement? From there, it then goes to product selection. What should we do to solve these problems? We found out that there's a need. What's the right kind of product for us to build to get at that need? And that's still very generative research. We're still learning a ton. Then you go into feature refinement. We're gonna launch a version of this product. Let's prioritize our feature set. What should be built into this? Why are these features valuable? What features should be primarily uh, the key functions inside the application we're building? From there, then it's user experience research, which is, okay, now that we know what features to build in the product set that we're building, how does it actually come together to be an intuitive user experience for people? And this is before anything's ever built. Then when you've done that user experience research, now you have prototypes. Now you're getting into evaluative research, but before things are built. So you can do testing. There's a lot of great software out there now to build high fidelity interactive prototypes, especially for digital products with 3D printing and some low cost manufacturing options. Companies are doing it for physical product prototypes as well, where before this is actually in usability testing of how effective is it at getting people to accomplish the task they need to do with this technology or this product. Now you're testing the concepts at a much higher level earlier on in the innovation life cycle. So yes, it has changed significantly. And I'd say discovery research is growing uh, because it's so helpful for companies to innovate. This concept of disruption, which you know, I'd say seven years ago when I was working with large enterprises, that was their concern. And that's what we sold to in my last business. A startup is going to innovate faster than you and disrupt your business, and you're not going to see it coming. And we help them to basically learn about things that didn't exist yet so that they could get better concepts to prevent that disruption or to disrupt their own business. Right? A lot of innovation labs and large companies, that's their mandate. Disrupt us before someone else does. So that work inherently is discovery, generative, 
um, earlier stage evaluative mm-hmm. research versus usability testing, which is only, usability testing from my perspective is at the far end of the product life cycle. It already exists. And now we're iterating on something that exists in reality. Right. I mean, it's, it seems to be true in general that in, in this business environment and just increasingly more so that you need to be asking the generative questions to, to, to know that you're asking the right kinds of questions, doing the right kinds of research and that your assumptions are even rooted in some form of reality because they could very quickly fall out of line with reality with the way the world is changing so fast right now and markets are changing and businesses are moving. That's exactly right. You know, the obviously, you know, the last 18 months, the world has changed significantly, but that pace of change from my perspective and seeing how fast our clients are innovating is only getting faster expectations of what technology can do for you expectations of the seamlessness of using software the they just keep going through the roof every single enterprise software user has the same expectations of their enterprise grade technology that they use to do their job as they do of the messaging app on their iphone right it needs to be easy to use and i don't need to look at an instruction manual it needs to be um, as seamless as using any other piece of consumer technology that we use in their everyday lives and we see this with like all consumer technology. It's getting simpler, more intuitive, and easier to use. And now we're seeing that for basically every product in the enterprise and industrial workspace as well. It's making things incredibly easy and intuitive. And that's why these companies need to innovate more than ever because expectations are changing faster than ever. And unfortunately, there's such large companies that exist right now that have such a dominant market position and unlimited budgets to test and experiment spend $100 million on a failure and it affects nothing in their business. That is putting the pressure on innovation more so than is, I mean, that I've ever seen in my career to innovate. Like you, I, it's almost impossible to compete with these behemoths. And the only way is to make sure you're solving the right problems um, and focusing on areas that actually need new solutions, as opposed to just your legacy product set, your legacy systems, uh, the status quo. Now, you have to challenge those assumptions. You have to challenge the status quo as early as possible, even as a small company these days. Now, I think about businesses before the pandemic that didn't have a digital presence. If you're a restaurant that didn't have an, you know, your menu online, you didn't have the ability to take orders, what happened to you at the beginning of the pandemic? You probably had to shut down completely because you didn't have the technology infrastructure in place. And now, you know, as Facebook and Google change their algorithms, as your content doesn't get promoted the same way, if you're not mm-hmm. digitally savvy or innovating on how you're even just marketing to your customers, there's always the chance your business is going to disappear overnight. I've seen that happen with clients where Google changes their algorithm, their source of, they were relying on organic traffic or paid traffic, and now suddenly they're not getting any traffic and their business evaporates overnight. The only way to think about how do we fix that is focusing on where can we innovate how do we innovate better? How do we build more valuable things? How do we actually get to our customers? And now this is, you know, this is kind of a tangent, but a lot of people, I think innovation is just on product. Um, my experience is like oftentimes more important is the innovation on sales and marketing and customer experience, customer success, customer support. That's how you can quickly innovate as a company, even if your products aren't able to innovate as quickly. If you're learning where are people learning about solutions to their problems that we solve, how do they actually engage with a customer, uh, engage with a solutions provider like us? How do we differentiate ourselves from our competition, which oftentimes can be done with better customer support, better resources, better help documentation? You can innovate in all of those areas, but you have to really learn uh, about your competitors and about your customers to know which of those things are worth investing in. Hmm. And Michael, if you're if you're a product manager at an enterprise company or you're an entrepreneur looking to start a company. Um, 
how can they validate at, like their I- idea uh, before they start working? And related to that, like, are, are there some good uh, open-ended questions in your experience that tend to elicit uh, higher quality insights? Yeah, definitely. So um, that is a challenge for everyone to make sure that your validation methods are reliable. Uh, because it's very easy to delude yourselves, especially entrepreneurs or people in large companies with existing skin in the game. You want your babies to be beautiful. You want to believe that what has paid your bills in the past will continue to pay it in the future. And getting over those biases is not easy. There's a few tricks that I've learned that help to cut through those biases. And what I say is if you're not willing to find out your baby is ugly, don't test your baby, right? And so instead, start with kind of general discovery questions. How are you solving these problems today? Here, I want to show you three websites. Look at these three websites and tell me what you think and make all three of those your competitors' websites, right? I want you to look at three different products and test them. Don't test your product, test your competitors' products. It's a lot easier for you to be cynical and critical about things that aren't yours. So for an entrepreneur, I'd say don't test your idea, test the existing solutions. What are people doing to solve that now? What do they like and dislike about those solutions? That's a much better way to validate what you're doing is by looking what exists and what's missing, as opposed to here's what here's my concept. What do you think about it? That is the worst type of research you can do. People are not going to give you the information that's reliable, and you're going to interpret it through a very distorted lens of this is something that I believe in strongly. So you have to figure out how do you mitigate your own biases and getting competitive uh, competitive artifacts, marketing and sales artifacts a great place to start. Look at these three websites. What do you like about them? Why would you buy this? Why wouldn't you? Don't even have them ask about your own product. So I'd say that would be uh, the easiest ways to cut through the noise. The second best thing to do is to hire an independent researcher. Take yourself out of the game, right? Don't rely on yourself to be unbiased. Get a third party, an independent person who can ask good questions, validate concepts for you and give you some real truth. It might be hard to swallow. Um, so yeah, those are those are a few tricks that I can recommend. But that is, you know, I think what you um, what you have to do to be a good innovator these days is assume you're always wrong, right? Assume you're wrong even when you launch a product. Assume there's ways to improve that product. There's things that you forgot, things that you missed. And when your mindset is on iteration and constant improvement, then you're going to be okay. You'll survive that as long as you go in without believing you figured it out correctly. And, you know, the customer is always right is absolutely true in customer experience. And this is a very easy way to see a bad entrepreneur is when they see usability studies of their products and they're criticizing the user for being stupid. It happens all the time, right? Like, oh, he's not seeing the button. It's right there. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, but he's a human, right? This person's a human. You did something wrong. Like assume that they're right and assume that someone's going to do the same usability test on your product and find this low-hanging fruit of moving that button to a more easy-to-see place, and that customer is going to go right away to the other, to your competitor because they actually are addressing their problems. So, you know, it's not mm-hmm. easy. I'd say it's a continuum. So, the, just to like kind of summarize, test other people's products first, validate on things that exist already, so you don't have to spend as much time and money on your own things, and then assume you got it wrong. Always, always have that assumption in mind as you go and do research. Hmm. Thank you, Michael. We have. We're com- coming close to the end of our time here. So I have one more question for you, which is how do you approach user research for your own product? Are you using that product actively? Uh, t- tell me a little bit about how all of what you've just discussed is implemented in your own company and validating your own product. 
Yeah. So we aspire to and to use the um, the term that's used in technology, eat our own dog food as much as we can. Frankly, we have work to do on it. We don't have a dedicated full-time researcher on our team yet, but it's our next on our hiring list. So we're hopefully going to do a better job. What we do uh, do internally is we record as many conversations as we can. Every touch point with a customer, even our like our internal kickoff meetings, our status review meetings with customers, we're recording each and every one of these interactions and we're putting them into our platform and tagging them and sharing them as data across the team. And then we do at least quarterly, really uh, well codified and documented user experience research. So doing usability testing with our existing users at regular intervals. And now going forward with all of our new product development, user research is a necessary uh, a, a necessary step in our product lifecycle development and development processes. So everything going forward, we design it, then we research and test it, iterate it, and only once we've iterated based on user insight and feedback, do we then move it into development. Uh, but we're always striving to get better. You know, the truth is, especially as a small startup, uh, even though our team is growing, um, it's not always easy for us to make the time for the discipline of doing mm -hmm. research work. So what we do is we try to record all of these conversations. We treat that as data so we don't have to force ourselves into doing a formal research plan all the time. Talk to customers, record our sales calls, record our demos, listen to the feedback, record our reviews and our check-ins with all of our customers. We even record our internal meetings to make sure we're not losing the insight from those conversations. So just basically practicing what we preach in terms of these conversations are where real insight lives. We try to practice that as much as we possibly can. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the invitation. I was happy to take the time. Michael, um, what's the best way for the listeners to, to, to get in touch with you if they're interested in Tetra? The best way to get in touch with us is definitely go to our website, tetrainsights.com. Uh, there's a contact form right there. There's a phone number that you can call. Reach out and uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Great. Thank you.